Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonawala. Uh, today we are being joined by Professor Yoshiko Herrera. Uh, she is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she is a distinguished expert on Russian politics, nationalism, identity, and ethnic politics and political economy. Uh, that really is going to be the subject of our conversation here today as we continue to dissect the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, so, Professor Herrera, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Professor Herrera, uh, I want to understand Russia and the Russian people a bit more uh, beyond just the geopolitics we talk about, beyond just Vladimir Putin. So, I feel like many in the West seem to misunderstand Russia. Uh, this is obviously underscored by February's invasion shock uh, to the general uh, public in the West. Uh, so, Professor, do we in the West understand Russia as an academic and educator? How do you approach Russia? Yeah, I think the first thing to understand about the country, <clears throat> which maybe some people already do understand, is that it's not a democracy. It's an authoritarian regime. Um, so that's that's the first thing. Um, it's led by Vladimir Putin, who's been in power since 2000, so for 22 years. Um, but here's where I think we get into a little bit less obvious territory. <clears throat> so Putin uh, started out as a former KGB officer. And from the beginning of his rule, he systematically punished anyone who opposed him. So he started with jailing, exiling, or murdering his opponents one by one. And I think that initially some of these people were sort of bad guy oligarchs. And so there wasn't a lot of sympathy for, say, exiling Boris Berezovsky to the UK. But when you look back, it's it's really a pattern of not allowing any kind of opposition. And it's grown worse over time. The regime, especially since, let's say, the last 10 years or so, uh, and especially the last five years, has increasingly used violence to stay in power. So they manipulate elections, they control the media, but increasingly they jail or um, or kill their their opponents. Um, so that that's that's one thing is that the regime is increasingly violent and authoritarian. Another thing is that Putin, Vladimir Putin, is fundamentally untrustworthy, which means you can't build trust with somebody who's untrustworthy, who's going to take advantage of any opening that you give him. And so that that makes it very difficult to negotiate or to solve problems because he's fundamentally shown that he's not trustworthy. So you said Russia is not a democracy, but are there any democratic institutions whatsoever existent? Because I know, at least in the 90s, there were elections, there still are, quote unquote, elections. Uh, but also, you know, you also say Russia is authoritarian. So is it an autocracy? Is it fascist? Or is it just merely authoritarian? And perhaps uh, when we use those terms, we could define, I guess, what the... Yeah, sure. Okay, so maybe we'll start with the terms and then that will get us into some of the um, institutions. Sure. Um, yeah. So we we would use in political science we would use authoritarianism and autocracy interchangeably, and that means um, that there are not the easiest way to think about it is repetitive competitive elections. Okay, so they don't have elections that are truly competitive, or another way to put it is free and fair. Um, they don't have elections in which different people can choose to run, and the outcome is uncertain, and everybody has a fair chance at winning. 
um, what they do to make those elections democratic, number one, is to keep any potential opposition candidates, serious opposition candidates, from running. So they do that by not allowing people who are opposition candidates to register. Or in the case of Alexei Navalny, um, he's actually in jail. He's the opposition leader that Putin tried to kill last year, and he's now been in jail for more than a year. Once he returned to Russia, he was put back in jail. So it's a key tactic of Putin to not allow potential candidates to run. So not just to manipulate the election once candidates are in it, but to not even allow candidates to run. There's only four political parties represented in the parliament, and those are all parties that are basically um, either the government's party, fake parties set up by the government, or parties that are incapable of winning a majority or posing any threat to Putin. So the Communist Party and the Liberal Democratic, so-called Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, those are both parties that get a small percentage of the votes and don't oppose the government. So they've been allowed to stay in. So the electoral institutional manipulation is high. The government also controls TV 100% and a lot of print, most print media. It doesn't fully control the internet. So where there are hints of democratic practice, let's say, is one, there is um, still, even though they're, they're increasingly cracking down since February 24th, there's still ability to access free information um, on the media, uh, sorry, on the internet. Um, and the thing about the elections is even though the government is controlling the candidates, um, largely controlling the process, like when people can vote, what kind of voting um, places, et cetera, uh, there are still ways that people have been trying to subvert the system. So, um, for example, last parliamentary vote uh, election, there was strategic voting to vote not for the governing party, United Russia, but to vote for one of the small parties, uh, which is called a fair Russia. And that was really to show a level of protest. They knew that it wasn't going to result in a true opposition, but at least it would show that the support for the government's party had had gone down. Some people try to not vote at all. Um, the government, you know, outright manipulates ballot counts by adding ballots, um, physically adding ballots, um, having people vote more than once, forcing people to vote, etc. So there's a, just a, a lot of institutional trickery, let's say, that goes on in addition to media control. But I think one of the biggest things is not allowing opposition candidates to run. And that's why when you look at polls of who do people support, it's very hard to interpret them because if the main people you would want to support um, or anyone even remotely potential, potentially possible to support is not allowed to be on the, in the poll, then you don't, you don't really have a, a fair set of choices to, to choose from. And that's been a, a key tactic of, of Putin. Okay. So it's definitely autocracy, authoritarianism, authoritarian. Is it totalitarian? That's a question people are asking, like, where is it going? Because with the increasing use of violence, with the crackdown on the internet, um, it's definitely moving towards a more totalitarian system. But I would say it's not quite there yet because of the, the, uh, they haven't declared martial law, for example. People can still leave the country. People can still make phone calls. Um, I mean, it's harder to leave the country, but it's not not quite as closed as, say, North Korea. Um, fascist. 
this is a big question right now in some circles. Um, is is Russia fascist? Uh, Marlene Laurel just wrote a book on, by this title. Um, Timothy Snyder has made a case for fascism. I think the the thing that for a lot of people stop makes Russia uh, stop short of calling um, Russia fascist is what had been a lack of ideology or plans. Like they didn't have a revolutionary transformative vision for the future. Um, I think the war has complicated that because uh, it was such a shock and it is such a big change for Russia and for Ukraine and for Europe. Um, and they seem to be digging in. So it's possible that we're going to say in not too long, Russia has become fascist, but they don't, they don't have a coherent ideology. Um, they don't have a con- coherent plan for transformation. And so I think that's, that's typical of fascist regimes. And that's what was missing so far, but that may be in process. So if one reads about Russia, I mean, you'll definitely inevitably find these theories as to why Russia has struggled to embrace democracy. And of course, after the Soviet Union fell, I think a lot of people in the West thought Russia was going to succeed in its democratic moment. But I guess, why has Russia failed in its experimentation with democracy? Uh, Are there underlying societal, institutional, or economic factors that sort of drive this anti-democratic nature? Yeah. So you're hitting on basically the question that animates all of comparative politics and political science. You know, since actually World War II, when, you know, political science really started developing as a social science, the the animating question was what led to Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Why did countries turn um, authoritarian, not just authoritarian, but fascist or totalitarian? And what can be done to stop it? And the question of democratization or authoritarian um, regime change, you know, is just, it's probably the most looked at question in political science. And people, um, people are really, there's not like one clear answer, but I guess, um, there's a couple of things we sort of think are, are related now with a lot of patterns in a lot of countries around the world. Um, so one is the institutional manipulation. Um, and that's where there's a lot of people worried about democracy in Western Europe or in, in Europe or in the United States. Um, when electoral, um, electoral institutions are tinkered with to help the ruling party continue to stay in power or help one party, um, versus another, these unclear playing field advantages, media manipulation, money and politics, um, and as you're seeing in the in the U.S., outright attempt. I, I'm sitting here in Wisconsin, but you know, attempts to overturn electoral results with um, fake slate of electors or having Mike Pence um, overturn the results of the election, et cetera. So these institutional things may sound not you know super exciting, but the institutional commitment to democracy is important. And in Russia, there was a lot of small steps along the way that made it harder for different parties and different individuals to compete. And it's basically a long series of small steps that has led us to 2022. So for example, there used to be 20 plus parties in Russia. And why are there only four now? Well, one of the things Putin did was change the electoral system from single member districts to proportional representation. So meaning that instead of voting for um, a candidate, you vote for a party. 
But at the same time, he made rules about parties and saying they had to compete in all regions of Russia in order to participate. So the largest country in the world, you have to, you have to compete across all regions. And he raised the threshold. You have to get at least 7% of the vote. And so by doing that, he immediately uh, limited the number of parties who could get 7% of the vote and compete across all regions to, to just four. So that kind of a change doesn't seem in itself a change to authoritarianism, but it was a way to restrict the number of parties. And there's just many more examples of that. Um, okay, so that's the institutional side. On the economic side, Russia used to be a communist country, part of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union, although there was some level of corruption, some level of inequality, communist countries generally were less unequal than capitalist countries. And Russia and other post-communist countries went through a record-breaking change towards inequality right after the end of the Soviet Union. So the 1990s, which was a democratic period um, coupled with economic liberalization, the result was a massive transfer of wealth to a very small number of people. Um, and that, that that's very unpopular. And unfortunately, that rise in inequality is coupled in people's minds with the democracy experiments of the 1990s. So a lot of people look back at the 90s and they literally refer to it as a chaotic period where there were no rules, where there was a lot of violence. Um, everything was unclear, uncertain in terms of where the country's going, how to just have a stable lifestyle, et cetera. So it really delegitimized democracy in the minds of people. And when Putin came to power, the first thing he did was go to war on the so-called oligarchs. And the idea was supposedly to bring order back to the country and stability. But it also was coupled, you know, here's a structural factor with rising oil prices. So if you look at the price of oil under Putin's reign, it starts going up right after 2000. And so in the first decade of his rule, there's double digit growth combined with his creeping authoritarianism. And so for a lot of people, they thought, well, okay, Putin, he's not so democratic, but anyways, you know, things are going fine for us in terms of the economy and our own personal household income, et cetera. And so it's okay. We'll just go along with a little bit less democracy in order to have this economic stability. Um, and so that sort of set Russia on this path towards A, uh, less democracy and B, relying on oil and gas revenues, actually, for growth. They never diversified the economy. And um, increasingly, though, people realize that the government has no plans. It's just things are stagnating. That kind of came to the fore after 2007-8 financial crisis. But at that point, the government just started using more and more violence and stronger authoritarian tactics to to um stay in power um so in russia i think it's a combination of economic factors where high oil and gas prices coincided with increasing authoritarianism and democracy was kind of delegitimized by the economic inequality and chaos of the 1990s i think those are the big factors but putin is also himself a factor. I mean, he's sort of an, um, he's absolutely committed to staying in power himself and not committed to democracy. And so I think there's a certain element of leadership that matters too in the story of where Russia ends up today. 
So, but if we go back beyond the 90s, I mean, how far back do we have to go to understand the Russia of today? For example, perhaps uh, there sometimes is this assumption, at least from one of my college classes, that the Russian people may prefer sort of strong man leaders. I feel like, for example, like Brezhnev or Stalin or like one of the old czars and so on. Is that uh, accurate? Is there something in political culture in Russia to prefer some of these strongman leaders versus uh, as opposed to someone who might be a reformer like a Gorbachev, a Yeltsin, a Khrushchev, and so on? Yeah, so it's, it's a good question, um, a question that a lot of people are asking. Um, I think there's a couple of things, though, uh, that I would say in response to it. One is, you know, every country that's democratic today started out as not democratic. Every country has had some kind of transition, and typically, in the most solidly democratic countries, that transition took a long time. Um, so that's one thing, is that starting out with an authoritarian past does not per se doom you to authoritarianism, because that's where every democratic country started. Second, in terms of do Russians prefer autocracy or the strongman rule, um, people used to talk in political science about um, uh, civic culture, democratic culture values. And the examples that they would give were the United Kingdom and the United States of having these total commitment to democratic values. And, and they would say, the reason you have democracy is because institutionally, what you need for democracy is a commitment by losers to keep playing the democratic game. Democracy is all about accepting rules. So it's about saying, we're going to have elections. The outcome is uncertain. And if I lose, I'm committed to accepting my loss because I know there will be another election in the future and my party or my candidate might win. And so I accept losing outcomes. It's not about accepting winning. Democracy is about accepting losses and, and agreeing to play by the same rules over and over. So we used to say, well, you know, in the US and in the UK and other solidly democratic countries, that's what you have. You have a culture of accepting losses of peaceful transfer of power, et cetera. Well, you know, now we know that not everyone in America, not everyone in the UK, et cetera, accepts the rules and accepts losing. So that's why, you know, the, 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 the January 6th riot and the, the Trump refusal to accept losses is so threatening to democracy is because that's exactly what leads to non-democracy is when parties that lose don't accept the outcome. So when you look at Russia, you see that Putin doesn't accept losing at all. Uh, all of his institutional manipulations since he came to power in 2000 are all about tilting the playing field to his advantage to make sure that his party stays in power. And so you know, is it about values? Is it about what people prefer? Um, I think that's a harder question to, to answer with regard to Russia because the comparative data tells us that there are a lot of people in apparently democratic countries who also don't accept um, democratic values. And if you say it, just do you accept democratic values, you know, it's kind of abstract. But what they ask people are questions like, um, do you think it would be okay to make a certain rules change that might benefit your party in the next election, for example? Or do you think it would be okay if certain candidates weren't allowed to run or, or something like that? 
And it's this acceptance of small things that leads to the erosion of the overall set of democratic institutions. And so I tend to not think that this is about Russian people and Russian values per se. Um, although, you know, we have data and you can see comparatively where there's more support or not for democratic institutions. And not surprisingly, typically in democracies, there's more support for democratic institutions. Um, but that's something that's changing, unfortunately, right now. So, and I want to shift this conversation into one about Russian identity. Uh, so basically, my first question on that is, is there a cohesive Russian identity? I mean, uh, Russia is massive. The Soviet Union was massive. And then the Russian Empire was also massive, certainly had a lot of different communities of people. What makes a cohesive Russian identity if that exists? Yeah, this is a great question. It's actually a topic, one of the topics of my research. Um, and so I have an answer, which is that, no, there isn't a very cohesive Russian national identity. There are a lot of different types of Russian national identity. And this is true in a lot of countries that what it means to be part of that nation is contested. Some people think it's one thing. Some people think it's something else. So in the case of Russia, yeah, there's definitely a Stalinist element that are in favor of um, a kind of chauvinistic Russian rule over other nations, including Ukraine, um, Georgia, you know, Tatars, Chechens, you name it. Um, but there's also, you know, different aspects of Russian nationalism. There's people that like Russian literature that like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. I mean, reading Tolstoy right now is a pretty strong indictment of the Putin regime, a book like Resurrection, for example. Um, so, you know, there's people that like Russian literature. There's people that are admirers of Russian scientists, of Sakharov, who was a human rights activist um, in the 1990s, as, as well as being a Nobel Prize winning um, scientist. So there's a lot of different aspects of, of what it means to be Russian. Um, unfortunately, I think the chauvinistic Stalinist element is represented in, in Putin. Um, Orthodox, Russian Orthodoxy is another strand of their identity. And the current Russian Orthodox Church is a totally pro-war, pro-genocidal um, supporter of the Putin regime. But not everyone who's Orthodox um, and not everyone who's part of the Moscow Patriarchy um, of Orthodoxy supports that position. There's, a, there's currently right now a lot of division within supporters of Orthodoxy who are located in Ukraine, for example, or supporters of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, etc. So I think there's a lot of contestation about what it means to be Russian right now. And that's what you see is, is playing out in Russia. Putin is presenting a particular version, but that version has its limits. I mean, a lot of people are not in favor. They were fine with some authoritarianism combined with economic growth that allowed people to you know, live a lifestyle that entailed travel to Europe and watching whatever they want on Netflix and doing what they want. And they're not really enthusiastic about, hey, maybe our new model is North Korea and autarky. I mean, that's not going to be popular. So I think there is, there's a lot of um, contestation, but there's some elements, um, for example, anti-Westernism or um, critiques of NATO, which are very popular in Russia. And that goes back to a sense of humiliation in the 1990s, where Russia was supposedly, uh, they, the term they use is Russia was on its knees. Um, and uh, 
NATO expansion is seen as a symbol of that humiliation of Russia being weak and unable to stop something that people disagreed, a policy that people disagreed with. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's contestation, but there's some things that are popular. Um, but there's also Russia is a country of 83 regions. There's 22 ethnic republics. And, you know, a strange phenomenon in Russia is that there were serious sovereignty movements in Russia of some of those non-Russian nations. So for example, Chechnya and Tatarstan. Um, so you have Tatar language, Tatar people, et cetera, living in, in Tatarstan, one of the regions you have same with Chechnya. The Chechens were absolutely committed to their own state. And there were two really brutal wars in Chechnya fought one in 94 to 96 and the other in 2000 to 2009. Um, and Putin uh, just bombed Chechnya to smithereens in the 2000s. So those are separatist regions. But ironically, or strangely, now some of those regions are the strongest supporters of Putin in terms of elections and other kinds of support. The Chechen leader, Kadyrov, is you know, a horrible human being, war criminal, um, has used a lot of brutality and violence within Chechnya. Um, and he's one of Putin's strongest supporters. So the nationalist element of Russia versus non-Russian ethnicities is not simple in terms of thinking that Russia is treating Ukraine the same way it treats ethnicities within the country. Um, because a lot of those non-Russian ethnic groups in the country are actually Putin supporters. Um, so uh, there's a lot of different things going on within Russia. And I would say the sense of what it means to be Russian is definitely in flux. And there's a lot of people who might have been Russian, sort of patriotic about Russian nationalism um, before the war, who have now kind of renounced that. I mean, they were not, they were, let's say, of the Sakharov variety, uh, but they are now, you know, anti-Putin and to some extent becoming anti-Russian. So in, in attempting to bolster, you know, that idea of perhaps Russian nationalism, uh, I guess President Putin continues to invoke history and oftentimes a revisionist history to frame Russia and the Russian people again and trying to build up that nationalist uh, image. Uh, so what role does that does that portrayal of history, of this, that does Putin's version of Russian history play in how Russians view themselves in their country? Again, you mentioned, I guess, uh, Russia on their knees, right? Some of the uh, embarrassment yeah. that Russia has faced uh, since the Soviet Union fell. Uh, yeah, I, I'd love to just hear a bit more about the revisionist history, if that has played a large role. Yeah, so that, it's a good, it's a really great question. And there's, I think there, you know, there's a lot to talk about, but I guess I would, I would want to mention like, a few key, few key aspects of history. Um, so number one is that throughout Putin's regime, one of the things he really played up was World War II and the Soviet victory over Nazism, over Nazi Germany. So he made a huge deal of commemoration of World War II and of this narrative that it was the Soviet Union per se that defeated Nazism. And there is a certain legitimacy and um, truth to that in that, you know, a lot of people even in the West would agree that without um, Soviet, the Soviet, you know, of course, the Soviet Union first made a pact with Nazi Germany. Um, but later, Germany invaded the Soviet Union. 
and Soviet Union fought along with the Allies to defeat the Nazis. And many people would agree, A, the Soviet Union suffered huge losses, you know, 20 to 25 million people. B, the Soviet Union and the battles in the Soviet Union, you know, battles like Stalingrad, et cetera, were important for defeating the Nazis. So there was a, a sort of commemoration of the Soviet Union and to some extent, even Stalin, even though he's also responsible for a lot of atrocities, um, as well as collaboration with the Nazis initially. But nevertheless, there was agreement that Stalin, Soviet Union were important to defeating Nazism. That was a legitimate um, achievement that Soviet people, Russian people could be proud of. Putin really played that up. Um, I can't, I can't overstate how much of a big deal he made of commemoration of World War II defeat over Nazi Germany um, during his reign. Parades, um, museums, movies, this just became like a huge theme. So much that when you go to the question of is Russia fascist, a lot of people would say no, because they have no plans for the future. All they talk about is the past. All they talk about is this World War II business. They never have any plans. And so that World War II theme is a big deal. But what's important for current politics is this thread within it about the defeat of Nazism and what Nazism means. And in the Soviet version of Nazism, Nazism is not about genocide of Jews, about killing uh, people in Eastern Europe per se. It's anti-Soviet. Nazism is about opposing the Soviet Union. And so Putin has turned that into, and his supporters have literally said, you know, because Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine is Jewish, Russian speaker, and they have called him a Nazi. And, you know, many people find that hard to understand. How is Zelensky a Nazi? But if you define Nazism as anti-Russian, then you see that Ukraine, by virtue of standing up to Putin, that's how Ukraine is Nazi, is that they, Nazism means anti-Russian. So I think the 22 years of this narrative of Soviet victory over Nazism, that is very present right now in the portrayal of the war as anti-Nazi, although they've shifted the narratives for for the reasons for the war, etc. Remember, it started with genocide of Russians in the East and NATO, uh, a, a imminent threat from NATO, etc. But anyways, the, in terms of the Nazism thread, it's connected to this Putin narrative of victory in World War II. So that's one way he's used history. The second is Russian orthodoxy. Um, Soviet Union was an atheist country. Um, people were not religiously openly, even though, and they persecuted a lot of religious leaders and they replaced them with um, kind of Soviet, kind of fake Soviet sympathizers. So at the end of the Soviet Union, Russian Orthodoxy was not particularly strong, but strange phenomenon was that the promotion of Orthodoxy, restoration of churches, in some ways became, in the 90s, um, acceptable for liberals and others because it was seen as kind of anti-Soviet. Since the Soviet Union was anti-church, you know, restoring these churches was kind of an anti-Soviet thing to do. But the Russian Orthodox Church is increasingly led by uh, very strong uh, Putin supporters, authoritarian authoritarians. And so the Orthodox Church under Putin has grown as a highly 
corrupt and state supportive organization. So rather than being anti-Soviet, um, the church has become very pro-Putin, who's very pro-Soviet. And Putin has tried to downplay the atheism of the Soviet Union and make it seem like Russia has always been an Orthodox country. There's never been any divergence from that. It's just one long continuous line of Russian Orthodoxy. So that's, that's, uh, that's important right now in Russian identity, but it's problematic, uh, because Russian Orthodoxy in the war in Ukraine, because Russian Orthodoxy is connected to Ukrainian Orthodox Church and to followers of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine. And so bombing those people, killing those people obviously isn't going to get you adherence. Um, but this Orthodoxy is another important strand. And then more recently, Putin has just started with just, I don't know how else to call it, but outright nonsense about history, comparing himself to Peter the Great, um, talking about uh, Ukraine not being a nation, saying it was a little blip, mistake from Lenin, etc. So now he's just moved into the territory of just saying all kinds of things that are not true, that don't necessarily have a large following um, within Russia. Um, and I think something that's important, I think, for people to understand is there is not a lot, lot of uh, historical animosity, say, between Russians and Ukrainians in terms of ethnic hatreds within Russia, in terms of Russians, you know, hating Ukrainians. There is a level of chauvinism of Russians thinking, well, our language is kind of the best one. And then there are these other Slavic languages that are, you know, not as good as ours. And <laughs> Ukrainians are sort of our um, not as educated country cousin sort of thing. So it's a negativity and a chauvinism for, for sure, but it's not a, therefore we need to kill them all kind of hatred. I think, I think that's important, but on the Ukrainian side, I think things are very different because Ukrainians remember, you know, going back to what do you, what parts of history do Ukrainians care about? Number one for every Ukrainian is the, Famine of 1932-33, known in Ukraine as the Holodomor, recognized by many people as a genocide of Ukrainians by the Stalinist regime. That is a purposeful killing of Ukrainians, um, where there's millions of Ukrainians um, killed. That's a that is a vital piece of Ukrainian history, um, and World War II is also very difficult for Ukrainians because of persecution by both the Soviets and the Nazis. Um, and so for Ukrainians, the commitment to Ukrainian nationhood and Ukrainian statehood is wrapped up in this memory of this previous attempt of not only genocide, but destruction of the Ukrainian state. So Ukrainians are very motivated to, in this war, I think partly by this relatively recent memory of this, this genocide and all the atrocities and war crimes that Russia is committing in the in the country right now are, are only heightening that sense by, by Ukrainians. So, you know, within Russia, I don't think there was this level of animosity, especially at the mass level towards Ukrainians, but at the mass level, you know, there was a reverence for the Soviet victory in world war II. There's a mass support kind of anti-Americanism, anti-NATO sense. Um, so there are elements that Putin is using, but, you know, there are also limits. So what is the cost of this war in Russia? I mean, 
we talk about the general metrics, financially, militarily, socially, the human cost. But are the Russian people sort of understanding uh, these costs? Are those costs readily apparent to the Russian people? And has this detracted at all in, I guess, a significant way uh, in terms of the Russian people's support of the war and the invasion? Or, for example, yeah. do you think it's become like another sort of war in Iraq, uh, which it, you know, it started off popularly and then you know, gradually became more and more unpopular as the years went by? Yeah. Well, the Putin propaganda on the war is that and has been since the start. Well, OK, first of all, the war was not expected within Russia. I think it's important to understand that many people and I'll put myself in that camp did not think they were actually going to invade. They thought this is a big show of um, sticking it to NATO, showing that they could use force if they wanted to. And it's really making the case that Ukraine should not be part of NATO and NATO, you know, had not had serious plans to admit Ukraine. And so before the war and hence, you know, the Russian side had gotten a, a victory in that in that way. People thought there. I think a lot of people thought there wouldn't be an invasion. Second, once the invasion happened, it was portrayed as something that was going to be very quick. Now, if you're on the Ukrainian side, if you have any understanding of Ukraine, you would not have thought it's going to be quick. You would have thought Ukrainians are going to resist this to the end, like every single Ukrainian is going to fight this, which is what we're seeing. But within Russia, they're portraying it as first it was going to take three days, then it was going to take two weeks. And they keep saying this is very temporary. Um, you know, the sanctions, okay, so temporarily you can't fly anywhere, but that's going to end. Sanctions are going to be short-lived. Everything's going to go back to normal. So the propaganda within Russia is that this is very um, short-term. I think that the longer it drags on, the more costly it becomes for Russia, which is happening with the sanctions, then I think it's the support within Russia is going to wane. But I think it's important to understand that change in support for wars typically takes a long time um, in terms of when do the costs change public opinion. What we know from other countries is it usually takes a while. But we do not know what the true sense of public opinion is in Russia. Whatever poll you see saying, you know, 80 plus percent of Russians support the war. The problem fundamentally is that it is such a repressive environment that if you did not support the government, you wouldn't even answer the poll. If somebody called you on the phone and you were not a Putin supporter, you might as well hang up or pretend the cut connection got cut because why risk anything for a poll? You know, it's just, it's just not worth it. So I think the key thing in these polls is you need to see the non-response rate and they are not releasing that. So what you're getting is people who are responding are people who either are Putin supporters or feel fairly secure in their positions in order to um, criticize the government. But that's a, a small minority. And so we don't know what the true sense of support for the war is, given the level of repression. So, Professor, my last question, uh, how do you see the war impacting Russia in the long term? Uh, like what societal changes may the war bring, if any? Um, okay, Russia is going to be damaged in the long term, economically, politically, socially. I don't, I mean, that's why I think the war, I mean, I want to say, first of all, Ukraine has been um, so, so damaged by this war financially um, and in terms of humanitarian costs of the, the people killed. The war is just incredibly costly for Ukraine, really, really costly for Ukraine. But I think Ukraine has a way out. Um, 
if it wins the war and is able to rebuild. For Russia, though, long term, until they get rid of Putin one way or another, I don't see any possibility for improvement in Russia because Russia is going to remain isolated economically and politically. Um, as long as Putin is there, as I said at the beginning, you know, he's an untrustworthy person. Um, his regime is untrustworthy. So you can't really rebuild trust with an untrustworthy regime. Um, there may be some normalization, you know, like occurred in the Cold War over time, but Russia is not going to prosper um, as long as the Putin regime is in power. And in terms of human capital, you know, you see a lot of people leaving the country and um, the damage to Russia in terms of education, um, all of the things that you look to, to for economic growth or just human prosperity in general, you know, are going the wrong way in Russia. The increasing use of violence to stay in power obviously is negative. So I think the war long term for Russia is is just an enormous disaster, a huge disaster. Um, and I don't really see any way out of it unless Putin is out of power. And actually, if Russia loses, this ironically could be a way for Russia to start rebuilding. But um, there needs to be a major regime change in Russia for Russia to um, return to any sort of path to positive political, economic, social development. Well, let me just sneak one last question in there, actually, because you raised that Putin point up, uh, especially if Russia loses the war. Uh, is there any real chance that Putin actually loses power? Uh, I mean, there are rumors about, you know, whether he's sick or not sick and so on. I'm not necessarily sure how, uh, what is the veracity of those rumors about whether he is sick and whether that sickness may have motivated some of this stuff. But is there any possibility that in five years, perhaps there may not be a Putin in power? Is that realistic to assume? Well, okay. He's turning 70 this year. Um, he cannot live forever. Okay. Maybe he doesn't have cancer. Maybe he's totally fit. Well, he's not going to live 50 years. So eventually he is going to be out of power. Um, now, you could say, well, it doesn't matter because he has other supporters. And so he's just going to be replaced by somebody who's worse. I would say pretty clearly, no, nobody is worse than him. He's totally, he's damaged Russia and Ukraine so much more than anyone thought possible. No one is worse than him. Um, but is he sick? Is there going to be a coup, et cetera? I think we don't know. I mean, he doesn't look particularly healthy, but you know, it's hard to say. So I, I just don't know how anybody knows what the state of his health is other than speculating. Um, and so we don't know the state of his health. He may be healthy, but he may not be. Um, we do know his age. Uh, there's lots of rumors about potential coups, etc. Um, I think the problem is that uh, he's systematically built a regime based on loyalty built a regime made of people who are unlikely in their constitution to stand up to him, like Dmitry Medvedev, the former prime minister who he temporarily installed as president. Um, so he has a, he has a number of loyalists, loyalists um, and people who are reliant on him economically. So he's not surrounded by a lot of people with independent power bases. So I think that, kind of makes the coup seem unlikely. However, the more damage and the more 
losses that pe- that people see in Ukraine, the more there may be an incentive to change course. But it's going to be very hard because any coup plotter would want to know how much support in the population or among others they have. And it's very hard to know uh, what people, who people would support because we don't, we don't have a, a media environment free enough to give us enough hints about that. So, um, you know, I don't think it's, it's, it's good. If there is going to be a regime change, I think it's going to be unexpected. You know, it's not going to be easy to predict, but that's, he knows that too. His regime knows that support in 1989 for anti-communist leaders in Eastern Europe sort of came out of nowhere. There was a lot of discontent and people thought they had no options, but once there was an opening, people very quickly switched sides. Um, and I think that's probably what we'll see in Russia if we ever, if, um, you know, if we're ever lucky enough to get rid of Putin. Um, but right now it's just very hard to predict where that change will come from. On that note, Professor, thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on. And I mean, this has been a great conversation on Russian identity, Russian nationalism. I mean, we've spent a lot of episodes talking about Russia, especially in the context of the invasion of Ukraine. But uh, unfortunately, before this, we hadn't spent too much time on the Russian people and Russian identity. So this was a very illuminating conversation. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. And yeah, I thought your questions were were very, very, very good, very interesting questions to, to talk about these days. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, you're welcome. <laughs>